Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. Without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Del Rey, the founder and president of Recovering from Religion, one more time for him to introduce our fantastic, wonderful, and amazing guest. Uh, I'm just honored and proud to call Nate Phelps my friend. He's been to my house several times. Uh, we've worked together on projects. He was a former board member and is now board member emeritus for Recovering from Religion. In fact, he was in the very he was one of the very first board members for RFR way way back when. We won't say how long ago that was, will we, Nate? No. Uh, but. I met Nate in 2009 at the Atlanta American Atheist Convention when he was speaking. Uh, I have never seen I have never seen this happen before, and I've never seen it happen since. Nate got up and told his story, and there were 600 people in the room. And I'm I'm not exaggerating when I said a minimum of 30 percent of those people were crying uh, at the end of that talk. It was a very, very moving talk. And at that moment, I said, I got to know this guy. I got to meet him. And I finally got to meet him, but very briefly. And then as uh, time went on past uh, past that time, uh, well, I should also tell you that I live in Kansas City. I'm 45 miles from where Nate grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and the Westboro Baptist Church. So I have a special connection there. I see his family out protesting all the time. For years, I've seen this, uh, long before I even knew Nate. So it, it's just been interesting to, to know somebody from, from that particular religion and, uh, and, and have him be so supportive of what we're doing. And, and we've been very supportive of what Nate's doing. And Nate's done a great job in many areas, all over the, all over the North America even, or even farther, I'm guessing. Thank you, Nate, for doing this. So I will leave it. I will uh, turn it over to you. Welcome so much. Um, you want me to kind of just read your bio or, or uh, do you kind of just want to share a little bit about your story? You go, you go right ahead and, and read it. And then, yeah, I was, uh, maybe we, I could spend just a few minutes talking about, uh, you know, my background growing up there and then we can go into, you know, a question or, you know, discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, um, sharing your story, uh, is really important just because of how powerful it is and, um, if anybody think that they had it bad, just uh, <laughs> listen to what you have gone through. So Nate Phelps was born into the fundamentalist church, Westboro Baptist Church. You guys have probably heard about them. They're infamous. But on the inside, there were years of extreme indoctrination and physical violence. And uh, he ran away from all of that on his 18th birthday. Over the next 40 years, he journeyed from abject terror of God's judgment to finally rejecting the God of his upbringing. And over the past decade, he has worked with a number of organizations, including Recovering from Religion, to push back against the destructive elements of faithful ideologies. So, Nate, you were born into the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah, yeah I um, 
one of 13 kids. Uh, it was a, um, for those who don't know, it, their, their theology is basically, basically Calvinism. I, I call it hyper Calvinism because my father was so extreme. He took what I consider now to be a very extreme religious ideology and, uh, you know, the Protestant, um, version and, uh, turned right and never looked back. He's, you know, as far as the extreme interpretation that, uh, he took even with an extreme ideology to begin with. He, uh, referred to himself often as a primitive Baptist, um, drawing on some of the ideology from, uh, from the preachers, you know, 200, 250 years ago, uh, which a lot of folks don't realize today was actually, you know, the theology that my father practiced was mainstream theology 150, 200 years ago. Um, but obviously today it was, there's supposed to be a, a kinder, gentler version of it. I have my issues with that particular description of it. But anyway, um, he, he was, um, because of his style of teaching and his, his way of interacting and dealing with people, the church, when, when we came of age, was uh, very small. There was just my family. Uh, 15, including our parents, <clears throat> and then two other small families of, uh, five and six people. So, you know, every Sunday there were like 30 people sitting in the pews and, um, we would sit for three hours listening to his, his version of, of, uh, Christianity. And because of the way he interpreted the Bible and some of those verses, um, in the Old Testament, he gave himself permission to uh, employ physical and emotional violence in the extreme. You know, he used the verses in Proverbs to talk about um, spare the rod, spoil the child. And that was his justification for extremely violent beatings when the, uh, one of the kids did something that was considered inappropriate or out of line. And then he used the verses that, that uh, talk about the position of a woman in um in the church and use that as a justification for uh, abusing his, his wife. Um, and then as, you know, as we grew up, we were, um, you know, church services were a very interactive, dangerously interactive experience. If, uh, you know, the kids were required to find the verses in the Bible instantly, we had to learn, memorize the verses of the Bible. Um, I think I did it at the age of six. So that when he would find a verse or, you know, call out a verse, we were at it. We didn't waste any time uh, getting to it so he could continue on with his sermon. And if we didn't find it fast enough, that would be justification for getting smacked around in the church pew right in the middle of the service. And he would ask us questions about the verses. And he would, if he didn't he would, like to, he would beat you in the, his children in church on Sunday. But typically it wouldn't be him. He would, he would call out to someone else who's sitting nearby to have him, you know, smack the kid around if, if he, uh, mm. missed the verse or if he didn't give the right answer when he asked the questions about the, so it was very interactive. You had to be on your toes at all times and, and God, God help you if you fell asleep on a Sunday night at nine o'clock when, you know, the temperature was up in the eighties and the humidity was up there with it. So, um, it was a dangerous environment and 
then as the kids grew and, and issues started coming up like, um, uh, sexuality, um, then that opened up a whole new can of worms and he was constantly berating us, talking about how, you know, basically talking about sex in a way that was, was degrading and filthy and ugly and, and that we were going to go sniffing after Philistine whores and that kind of stuff. So we got an earful and, and an idea of, of the, um, the, uh, horrors of, of sex, if you will. And then one other thing that, that was a theme throughout our childhood was, um, because he was the pastor of the church and because there's a verse in the Bible that says, um, children are to leave their mother and father and cleave to their, their wife or their, their spouse. He managed to make that all, uh, justify his position that he had control of, over us for our entire lives. So any, any focus on preparing the child for what it was like in the real world, preparing them to be successful in the real world. It just wasn't there. So because we were going to stay under his thumb, we were going to graduate from high school, go to college, and then we're going to go to law school and we're going to work in his law office. So there, there wasn't any ability to develop ourselves as individuals. Uh, we were basically just being groomed as servants for him and as soldiers for his his army so to speak so the westboro baptist church had a law firm that was like integral to the church as well is that what i'm understanding yeah my father had found out um i would say it would have been i was six or seven so early early to mid 60s he he discovered he had an aptitude for the law and went to law school and did did very well and uh so he came out of law school and and uh started his practice and ran into a uh, a snag early on he ended up getting suspended from practicing for a couple of years that led to a number of of um shifts and changes in in our reality growing up because we didn't have any money coming in the kids were out selling candy ostensibly for the church um but it was actually just so we could survive financially uh, and then when he got back into practicing law, he, he found a, ni- a niche with the, um, with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so he started, uh, developing a clientele of people who were, were using, or, you know, using that basically shell of a federal law and, uh, to start defining it, you know, tightening up and finding more and more, uh, um, basically getting a lot more judgments from, from the courts and better defining that, uh, that new federal law. And so that was, you know, he was having success at it and he saw that that would be a way to keep the, the, uh, children in, in tow and, and, uh, under his control. And it would be an opportunity for, you know, us to make money is really what it boils down to. Right. So, uh, but the, the broader point there is that, because of that, there wasn't any real opportunity for the children to develop themselves and the environment that we grew up in, in other aspects, you know, the fact that we were um, under his thumb and that he wasn't going to, to allow any kind of opposition to any of the positions that he took biblically or otherwise. So we really didn't develop ourselves as individuals, <clears throat> but there still was some of that instinct. And so as the kids 
the, the older ones, uh, the ones that were older than me, uh, started getting close to the, the age of the maturity or of adulthood. They started uh, flexing their muscles and trying to go out on their own. And my father started a campaign to basically hold them back again, using threats of violence and violence to keep them intact. In, in, in fact, my, my oldest sister, Kathy, it's a perfect example of that. She left about four months before her 18th birthday. And he had made it clear early on that um, until we were legal adults, he had authority over us. So he sent out a group of the kids to find my sister and to literally kidnap her back to the house and kept her locked in a room upstairs Oh my gosh. and on a forced fast because she was one of the kids that struggled with her weight. And, um, so she suffered for those last three or four months, severe violence, as well as the, you know, being basically trapped in, in her own home. So, um, so I'm watching all this, you know, I was sixth in line. So I I'm watching the experiences of my older siblings and realized that, uh, if I was going to do this, get away from this, that I was going to have to be deceptive about it and hide my intentions. So I spent the last uh, six months plotting, <laughs> bought an old car and kept it hidden and slowly packed what few belongings I had and hid them in the garage. And then on the night of my 18th birthday, I left there. Nate, could I ask a couple of things before you tell us how you navigated out at 18, if, if I may? Sure. Sure. Um, when you were growing up in that environment, did you, particularly as a younger child, did you just think that was normal? When, when did you get to an age, either yourself or your siblings, where you thought this isn't normal, this isn't actually the way things yeah. should operate? When did it kind of go off in your mind? No, that's a great question, Sasha, for, for several reasons. First of all, yeah, because that's all you know. As a child, this is normal. Um, including the thought that everyone outside of your environment was abnormal or evil because that was part of that whole indoctrination. That this is safe. This is good. This is godly. Everything else outside of it is evil. Um, interestingly enough, it was um, well beyond, like I'd say, 10, maybe 15 years after I left, I actually had an encounter with my sister-in-law where she made some comments about some of the my behaviors and some of my beliefs and my attitudes. And I said something to her along the lines, well, I'm, that's just normal. That's just who I am. And she kind of, her eyes went wide. Like she thought, it, like she was looking at some strange monster, right? Cause she couldn't believe that I couldn't see just how unrealistic and out of touch I was with, with reality in so many ways. And that was one of those, you know, when I talk about the ghost in the machine and I talk about the, the uh, tools and the, and the realization that that um, I I didn't escape it by escaping it. Uh, that's one of the things I talk about a lot because um, because that's a tough uh, hill to get over. This idea that no, this is normal. This is this is the way the world is. This is how I should be, and so. Um, you have to let go of that at some point. Mm. And that is very hard for a child particularly to do, particularly if we're raised in an environment where you have no external view of the world. It's You're in that narrow echo chamber. How do you even know that you can ask or question or that, 
these things are abnormal. I, I really feel for you and, and your family in that environment. Um, it, would it be true too that your your church um, and family life they were kind of intertwined? But how big was the the Westboro Church? How big was the reach that it had? Was it made up of just a few small families going through the same yeah, sort of thing, just, or was it just large? The three families? And every once in a while, the odd family would show up, and and you know usually they didn't last more than one service because my father, when someone new came in, he would he would make a show of taking the sermon that he had planned for the day, tucking it into the the pulpit and pulling out his special sermon and he would blast him and basically tell him that this is how it is. If you want to be in this church and most of them wouldn't come back. There were a couple of families from Indianapolis that we um, would have, you know, they would come once or twice a year and, and uh, stay a week or two. And so we had some interaction with, you know, small groups outside of that. But other than that, it was, um, it was those three families that I grew up with. Wow. And yet the media has reported there's been many documentaries that, um, that many of us have seen. Um, you were very visual, like you were very much in the face of the general community and it, that might've made the church appear to be a lot bigger than it really was. Is that is that well, true? They, How did... yeah. you, you have to give them props. They became masters at creating the impression that they were a lot bigger than they were. And they still do that, you know, with their website and their claims that they've done this many protests and um, the fact that they, you know, each of them carries four signs, they hang flags, you know, they're, they're good at it. They've done a really good job of creating this impression that they're big and they'll, make a big show of going to uh, somewhere to protest and they'll stay there for 10 minutes and they'll move on to another one. Right. And there's typically only one adult, maybe two adults. And, and then there's a bunch of small kids from that uh, next generation, you know, after I left um, all of these things serve to kind of create that impression. And then of course the things that they do, um, you know, got a lot of media attention, you know, protesting at the funerals of, of soldiers that tends to get a lot of attention and my that's where my father excelled he was a master at figuring out ways to manipulate the media and a lot were of, you um homeschooled then in inside of the church you, you, did you go to public school or private school or anything yeah no we went to public school which is an interesting uh, uh variance from what you see a lot in these in these more fundamentalist groups uh, my father had such profound control over what we thought that, you know, even though we ex- we experienced what was going on in the, in the real world, like um, he still had his hand uh, involved in that and was carefully monitoring it. And like, for instance, because we didn't, uh, he didn't believe in celebrating Christmas. He imposed himself on this, on the school's, that we went to that and demanded that if they did anything that had Christmas overtones to it, that we would have to leave the, the classroom while it was going on. And it was just one of the many things that he did to keep us uh, being and feeling separate from um, the larger world. On that topic, Nate. So as you're a child, and I'm trying to get into the mind of, of young, young Nate. I'm trying to see you as that, seven, eight, nine-year-old going to public school. Um, I came from an XJW background. Very much we were taught in-group, out-group. We were taught we had the truth. Everyone else were worldly. You would have had that on 
steroids. How did you navigate that going to school where did you view your classmates uh, with suspicion because they were not um, privileged to be in the one true faith as you were in your family environment? How did you have to put, give, put people at arm's length? Could you build up any friendships with, with friends at school or with classmates? Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, I would have to say it was fairly benign for me because I, he wanted all of us to be on fire. You know, he, that verse that talks about, uh, you're neither hot or cold, you're lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out. And, and he used that to constantly stress to us that, that we had an obligation and responsibility to be as aggressive and, and antagonistic as he was. And that just wasn't me. Um, so for, for me personally, it was more of a general sense that, yeah, all these people are wrong. They're all going to hell, but you know, I still have to, to live with them and get along with them. And I, you know, I didn't tend to want to be antagonistic towards other people. So, um, in practice, that didn't come up that often. However, if I was with some of the other kids who were inclined that way, I, you know, I would join in. You know, it was, it was safer to do that than to try to run counter to my father's message. So you're 18 years old. It's your birthday. It's midnight. And um, you've, you've had this plan to leave the family. Um, I'm sure that once you got in your car and drove away, it was just easy sailing and life was good for you after that, right? That's what I thought. <laughs> I, I, I should backtrack and tell you that because it, obviously at that point, there, w- there was no inclination in my mind at all to think that, that anything other than what my father had, had taught us was the truth. Um, and so I left there and, you know, dealt with this over the last year and a half. Once I decided I was going to leave, I left there believing with absolute certainty that Christ was going to return around the year 2000. So I had roughly until I was 42, um, to live my life on my terms. And then I was going to die and go to hell. And I had just accepted that, uh, at, at, at a, a visceral level. Um, so I was looking forward to that freedom and to having the opportunity to do what I could. Um, Sorry. So can I clarify that you thought you were, you, you were, you still believed in the doctrine, but you thought you would just get a little narrow window of life before you'd be eternally damned and just try and live a little bit of your life in that narrow opportunity. That's right. So, because a lot of, a lot of the reason I left there, um, at the time I left was because of the, of the physical violence. And, you know, I had, I had, um, taken in the message of who I was, and what I was, and I had, I'd accepted it. And because you can't fight it in that kind of environment, you can't fight it. Um, so yeah, when I left there, I just believed that I was going to have a short life as, you know, under my own power, under my own control. And then, you know, I was going to have to suffer that consequence of eternity. But it's a, it's a, a, um, theoretical, uh, academic thought when you're 18 years old. It's not really, you're not really having to live it, the reality of it yet. So it, it was easier to do that than it sounds like, but that was my mindset when I left there. And there was this general idea that, you know, okay, so I've, 
I've survived this. I've got away. No, no fear. No, no concern. I'll be okay now was kind of the, the, uh, naive thought that I left with, right? So. But you still wore that, that basically that, um, burden on your shoulders, assuming that God was going to judge you because yeah. you just weren't good enough. Yeah. I, I really, I really feel for you. I've heard of people escaping other high control environments where for 20 years afterwards, every time a thunderstorm rolls over, they think this might be the time that God's exacting judgment and punishment upon me. But they similarly had to reclaim some type of life, but it's very hard. So what you're saying is the academic and the emotional aspects have to be separated. The the ability to be able to analyze the beliefs isn't something that comes automatically after you extract yourself from the, the environment. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to what I said earlier, that there was very little self-awareness when I left there at 18, there was no, we didn't grow up in an environment where self-awareness was, was promoted or, you know, or so I just basically left. It was, it was almost a, um, a lizard brain, a reaction to the situation. I left because I didn't feel safe there. And it was, you know, and I stayed gone for five years. I didn't want to have anything to do with any of it. I didn't want to think about it, but I was thinking about it and I didn't realize it. And this is when a lot of the weird stuff, like I would, I would disappear for four or five hours into a dark hole, wouldn't talk to anyone, hide myself and have these, these really dark, ugly conversations where I was trying to impose my own thoughts and my own feelings and my own beliefs on an environment that we didn't have the opportunity to do that in, in real life. So I'm having this internal dialogue with, with my father and, uh, and very little of that even, um, had to do with religion so much as just the, the, the interactions that we had between, you know, a parent and a child. So, um, and again, all of that felt normal. That was one of the things that my sister-in-law looked at me like I was crazy when I said, no, that's just normal, right? Because you have so many things that happen to you in those kind of environments, so many uh, beliefs and so many uh, emotions and so many uh, experiences that are, that are destructive, self-destructive and, and otherwise, and you don't even realize it. Yeah. We often hear the expression that um, people are burdened with fog, fear, obligation, and guilt. And that is oppressive years after we get ourselves out of those environments. I like um, that. Did your father or any members of the family ever try and reach out to you and drag you back in either through guilt or manipulation <laughs> or fear? Yes, absolutely. First, the first interaction I got was, well, I knew I was going to get my father would, when someone left, he would send out a contingency uh, with an official letter on the official Westboro Baptist church letterhead that uh, announced that uh, church had voted and we had been uh, delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that our spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He loved that passage. And that, you know, he sent that out as an official announcement that basically confirmed what we already knew. You know, we were going to, God was going to punish us and we were going to go to hell because we left. And I can recall my specific example of that is, I had gone to work for a law firm in in, uh, in Kansas City, and I remember walking downtown Kansas City on Grand Avenue, heading towards the office, and looking up, 
to see if there were rocks falling off the side of the building because I was just convinced I'd worked myself up at that particular point in time that God was going to exact judgment on me. And that's not, that's not unusual. I, you know, several of my, my nieces who have left since then have recounted similar, not, you know, their story's different, but it's basically the same idea. There's just a certainty that at some point God is going to, uh, uh, reach out and, uh, pluck us up and, and, uh, destroy us because we left. So if there is a, an example of like extreme indoctrination, it'd be something pretty darn close to what you went through. Um, yeah. for you, what was kind of the first crack in the, in that whole uh, setup or that whole, um, dogma that you thought was uh, going to happen to you? Like what was kind of the first thing that um, triggered your, your doubts about what you had been raised uh, to believe? Yeah. That's, that's a tough one. I, it's hard for me to, there are points, Eric, where I can look at it. It's like when, when the, the thought processes that I've been going through for years start to coalesce and some event occurs and, and it really brings some clarity to the whole thing. Um, like I said, I was constantly challenging the things that I had been taught. Oftentimes, you know, he would, he would, uh, how he would interpret some passage in the Bible and I would have the thought fleeting. Well, or it could mean this. So there was that kind of pushback even early on while I was there, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything else in the environment that, that, gave me permission to um, consider that legitimate. So that was kind of the way it was going five, 10 years after I left. Uh, it wasn't until I made the decision I was going to actually go into to counseling. Um, but one other point I want to make is that he, the indoctrination process shuts off all avenues of escape, right? If, if you question the things that you were taught, your motivation is this, and therefore it's evil. Um, you don't want you don't want to be uh, the the burden is too heavy, the yoke is too heavy. Um, you're, you're questioning for all the wrong reasons. You just don't want to be um, follow God's rules, that kind of stuff. So, so every time fault. you do question it, you're immediately run into this brick wall in your in your mind that says, well. You're only questioning it because you aren't saved. You don't want to be um, accountable to God. So that was the, the big stumbling block that I kept running into. And then I went to this counselor, and he actually had a degree in theology as well as a psychiatric degree. And he put me through, over the year and a half I was in counseling with him, he basically put me through a um, a um, course on uh, how to interpret the Bible. And that was the first time that I, I actually had an outside source that I could look at and say, okay, here's a reason to believe that my father's interpretation of the Bible was wrong. And that kind of gave me a toehold. And I, you know, even though I still had those things going on in my head, I had permission from the, from the counselor and I had permission from the authors of these books um, to look at things a little bit differently. So there was a little bit more authority in those, those ways of thinking. 
and and that really, in large part, Eric is um, one of the main uh, story, parts of my story is that he just kept looking for permission and for little chinks in the armor mm-hmm. of this system that you were brought up in until you reach one of these um, moments of clarity and, you know, a big chunk of the wall falls down and then you start chipping away somewhere else. Yeah. So what was, what's been like one of the, like you, you began, I, I, I assume, and I, I seem to understand that from your discussions with your therapist, you began to kind of understand that what you were taught wasn't necessarily how the world worked. Um, and so that was kind of, it sounds like one of the first places you identified how heavily indoctrinated you actually were. Um, did you begin to develop some tools out of uh, working with your therapist um, to deal with this and identifying it in the future? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'd say probably the biggest tool that I have, have developed um, not only developed as far as using it, but developed an understanding of the value of it was when I recognized that, that oftentimes when I would fall into these holes, you know, emotionally or, or, uh, you know, just thought process, I realized that basically I'm just playing back things that I had heard over and over and over and over again. And so what I started doing was, and you know, not just creating mythology in my head, but, but studying, reading books, talking to people and developing new messages. And it took a lot of years and it's continuing. In fact, I, I, I think it's a lifelong journey, to be honest with you. You, you have to, when you're confronted with one of these situations, you identify, try to identify what, what were the beliefs specifically that you are holding on to and inform your thinking today. And then what is the truth as much as you can get to the truth. And then you create these new tapes that basically just play over, you overplay them in your head when you fall into a hole. That's where I can put it. Eh? That's um. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's almost like your self-esteem and your self-worth was squashed by this rhetoric that just kept being replayed in your mind until you got to a point. Would it be true that you had to somehow get to a point where you said to yourself, I'm not a bad person? You know, these tapes that are repeating in my mind say I'm a bad, broken person, I'm failing, I'm sinful, and I'm destined for for, for damnation. Um, and yet you looked at yourself and you knew you weren't a bad person. How did you reconcile that, Nate? Well, and a lot of it, again, is, is getting people in your life, finding people who can give you perspective. And I was lucky enough to have one of my older brothers, Mark, who had left there, and his wife. And they were two of my, my biggest uh, supporters, fans, whatever you want to say. And they just kept hammering it in that this was not – proper discipline this was abuse this was violence this was not okay that 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 uh these messages that we were raised with um were pounded into our heads that this isn't the truth you know so you, you hear that often enough and you, you still got the voices inside your head saying no they're just saying that because they're evil too but it's it's literally like you don't have um one of the things i've said so often is that that uh, I felt for years like I was an observer 
and not a participant in the world because you don't have any sense of yourself. And so part of this whole process of, of the tapes and, you know, educating yourself and, and saying it over and over is basically creating your own self rather than this, this uh, entity that defined who you were. So just a clarification for folks who were born before the year or after the year 2000, when Nate and myself and Sasha say tapes, that's referring to a VCR cassette that would be (laughs) uh, shoved into the throat of a machine and then magically pictures would appear. I'm not actually (laughs) sure what the modern day um, equivalent would be, but like, I don't know, like (laughs) the MP4 playing. Yeah. Over and over. A YouTube video just playing over and over again in your head, but hard drive. That's it. There you go. You know, Nate, um, I really relate to to what you've shared there too, because um my XJW world, we were taught anybody who left was a mentally diseased apostate. That was actually a word that they used for those who who left the faith or doubted. And I know a lot of friends who have left the Mormon world, they had drummed into them expressions like you need to doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. And if you have any doubts, if you have any questions, just put them up on a shelf and just, but what happens eventually when that shelf breaks? What happens when those doubts and those realizations that your environment are not, is not healthy, it's yeah. it's not right. Um, well, you need to do something. And that's, I think we're all really inspired by the fact that you've been able to take all of those doubts and then use that as a springboard to reclaim your life. How, how did you, how, how do you do that? How do you go from that point of repeating all of that bad rhetoric again and again? Yeah. We talked about therapy. Yeah, we did therapy. And I actually ended up and spent two weeks in a psych hospital. Right. Uh, I tried, I basically just kept pushing at it because, because staying there was just too painful. It was, uh, you know, the, the, the self-talk was so destructive and, and there was so much depression and that kind of stuff that basically you have this, this hope that there's something better when you, uh, if you just keep looking for it, right? Well, let's talk about dealing with indoctrination. I think that um, your story kind of points to just how deeply rooted it can be for children and also how insidious it can be for us as adults, just kind of working from that worldview. Um, so let's kind of get into that. Um, what, what, where do you feel, uh, Nate, would be one of the first places to start in working through this or maybe even identifying this? The, the, uh, help me out here. Identifying what? Identifying uh, the... Um, indoctrination that's affecting your 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 happiness and your uh, well-being well um i liken it to uh, an intricate quilt and there's all these threads in it and it literally is you live in your life and and something comes up and you suddenly recognize that your reaction to it your thoughts about it are still underpinned by this paradigm, this religious paradigm. And when that awareness comes along for that particular issue, then typically what I do is I'll start reading about it or I'll start asking questions and talking to people about it and challenging the paradigm that I've lived with all along. If you, and there's so much of that that's there that you don't even realize until something happens in your environment 
and all of a sudden it's it's pulled up. But I can give you a perfect example of that. When I was when I was um, the debate was raging about whether it was uh, choice or biological for uh, the LGBT community. Um, I joined the fray and I was in the debate um, everywhere it showed up. And one day it just occurred to me that I was having too strong of an emotional reaction to the idea that it was a choice. And I sat back and I asked myself the question. I said, why are you so emotional about this? What, you're not invested in this question. This isn't going to determine whether you go to hell. And then what I realized was I still am, I'm buying into the religious paradigm that if it's choice, then they deserve the consequences that the world gives them. And so then I have to start exploring that. And I got to the point where I said, you know what? This is nonsense. It doesn't matter if it's a choice. I mean, I have my opinions about whether it's a choice or whether it's biological. Um, as close to what I understand the science shows as possible. But at the end of the day, I, I won't even buy into that argument anymore because to me, that's a religious argument. And there's no evidence to support the position that, that the source of that religious argument has any validity to, it, validity to it at all anyway. So I can let go of that. And so that became one of the tools that I use now. I'm, I'm constantly vigilant. If I'm, if I get, if I have a strong emotional reaction to an issue that's being discussed, I have to pull away and try to figure out where that's coming from. What, what are the threads? What are the religious threads? Mm. What, what, and then how does that touch other areas of my life? Yeah. And so it's just a process. It's an ongoing, continual. And sometimes you have to pull away, kind of, you know, call an uneasy truce and pull away from it all because it can be exhausting at times, you know? Yeah. I really like your analogy of uh, the quilt. Um, um, I like that quite a bit. For me, uh, before hearing your analogy, I saw it as like a garden where there would be these weeds that kept popping up um, unbeknownst to me. And I, I would kind of be sifting through and tending my garden. All of a sudden I've seen this weed, like where the hell did that thing come from? Now I've got to deal with this and um, I, I you can't just take the leaves off of it. You have to, get down to the roots and pull the whole thing out. And um, I know as a kid, uh, my mother put me through some forced labor and we'd have to garden in the back and I would come uh, back with raw hands after some of these weeds that had thorns and stickers on them. And so it was, it's kind of tough work. No, that really works. And I, and I think as, as you've both highlighted too, here's a situation where we had so many ways of thinking patterns of thinking that was all just part of our indoctrination, our upbringing. Um, but to be able to step out from that and look back and say, I don't have to think like this. I don't have to be a victim of this type of thinking. These weeds, they don't have to exist. And I have the right to pull them out or ignore them and rethink and reframe our whole worldview and our whole way that we're going to navigate or define ourselves. But that takes strength. That's not easy. I mean, for those who perhaps have never been in a high control religious environment, they can say, well, just, just stop doing that. Just change. That's not easy. Um, so you talked about some really good tools for overcoming that type of thinking. Um, and I really respect that because it wouldn't have been easy. 
Did you, yeah. um, once you began to kind of identify these uh, things, did you also struggle with anger? Um, I, uh, I know for me, when I started to identify these things, I felt really angry that I was lied to and I was made a fool of, but there was nobody I could be angry at because it was systematic and uh, more systematic than it was like just my parents doing it or something. But uh, did you have something similar or anything different? Yeah. Ang- anger is a very interesting emotion when it comes to my experience. Uh, yeah. The short answer to your question is yes. A lot of anger, uh, not only about the religion, but about the, the, the consequences of, of how he interpreted his, his Bible. Um, but conversely, because of how, what I witnessed as far as anger being um, put out there by my, you know, in the environment that I grew up in, uh, I have I have a deep-seated fear of anger. <laughs> when anger is expressed, I I run away from it. You know, they, oh. they actually I was oh, diagnosed wow. with PTSD specifically because of my uh, really out of out of balance response when there's anger in in my environment. And that's destructive in a lot of ways because anger is a legitimate emotion. And, but if you don't know how to deal with it, both your own and when it's being presented to you, uh, it makes it challenging to, to deal with life. Um, It's just another one of those things that I am slowly getting better at. So you were coming, uh, you were kind of, uh, shot out of the Westboro Baptist Church with a sense of peace at all costs, um, that anger is a dangerous and a bad thing. Um, that's kind of how you kind of came out of it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Nate, because I think that's a lot of people can really relate to that, that there was an ingrained um, damage done to a part of you because of that upbringing and that, I really appreciate you sharing that. What are some of the, you know, you are in your open, in your biography, you were talking about being out of this for over 40 years now, and um, you're still discovering and dealing with some uh, indoctrination issues. Um, what does, what do 40 years on, what does that look like for you? Like, uh, do you feel confident and share, or comfortable in sharing some recent things that you've been dealing with? I mean, I think that as an outsider, someone who hasn't experienced what you have or what many of the, the folks who've gone through some uh, religious trauma have, uh, it would just be a set number of things. Like I've got five things that uh, are that I'm going to be struggling with. Um, and then once you deal with those five things, you're good. But uh, you're talking about 40 years on that you're still working through stuff. Yeah. Well, I'd say probably uh, the most recent example, Eric, is uh, I'll, I'll have to go back and kind of set the stage for this. Um, after I had left, I went to college, um, was taking a class, and ended up deciding I had to write a paper on some historical figure. And I picked John Calvin because it was relevant to me. And in the writing of that paper, I, I started seeing a lot of parallels between Calvin, who he was as a person, his theology and my father, who he was as a person, his theology. And I saw a lot of 
similar characteristics. I think they were similar personalities, to be honest with you. Um, but one of the one of the main features that popped out as I was doing this research was that they were such black and white thinkers. And, you know, that's the hallmark of Calvinism and of, of really of a lot of fundamentalist ideologies is this black and white, us versus them, either or kind of thinking. And so I ended up, the, the title of my paper was The Uncomfortable Grayness of Life. Um, you know, as, as a uh, uh, acknowledgement of that particular aspect of, of fundamentalism is, you know, life is difficult. We want answers. We want, um, we want assurance that things are going to be okay. And so when we can't get it, when we can't come up with an absolute, then we're not comfortable with that. But that's the way life is. Reality, the reality is that life is gray. Most of the right answers are somewhere in the middle between black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it, it, it's this whole idea of extreme thinking, um, staying polarized on mm-hmm. issues. And uh, one of the things that happened when we were growing up is my father, because he ended up in the hospital because he had let, let his, his weight and his health get out of control. And his response to that was to focus in on the verse that talks about your body's temple and ended up imposing, you know, rigid dietary and uh, weight loss and health requirements on the kids and his wife. And uh, if we didn't lose the weight, then we got beat. If we, you know, and it led to all kinds of bizarre behavior, like, you know, I would go to the sneak lunch at the cafeteria at school and then I'd go into the bathroom and throw it up and I'm taking laxatives and I'm uh, going for three or four or five days at a time, not eating and that kind of stuff because there was no guidance. There was no uh, real effort to educate and to teach how to be, you know, eat nutritionally sound and that kind of stuff. It was just, you know, lose the weight and then you're thrown out there and you don't do it. And there's, there's violent consequences. So now coming forward, you know, 30, 40 years, and obviously I'm still, you know, I went through 20, 30 diets in my life, up and down, always with that kind of black and white, all or nothing. Uh, If you fail, you've failed utterly and give up. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I I decided I'm going to look at this question from the standpoint of religion and what ideas that I bring out of my childhood that are affecting um, my efforts to get my, my health in line. Right. And that's, there's all these new threads start popping up. And, and once I started understanding that and employing a better understanding, then I started to finally having success. Wow. So you could say that in many ways um, we were, you were, you were infantilized. You, you were at a, a younger, you had to relearn all of these things that should have been taught to you as a child. And mm-hmm. here you were in an environment as, a, as an older person having to rethink and relearn those skills and those, those in, ways. In to so many it. ways. That's true. Yeah. You, you stay infantilized. It's a good, it's a good term in so many aspects of your life because you don't, uh, first of all, you don't even think to attach it to what you learned growing up. You think, well, I'm, you know, 40, 45 years old, I shouldn't have this thing figured out. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's difficult sometimes to see the connection between the things you were taught 
having to do with your religion and how they're affecting your life in non-religious areas. So now the talk of this discussion is about ghosts in the machines. Um, what uh, I can kind of see a, a parallel, like there is some underlying stuff that's controlling uh, your worldview and how you react and even how you behave in, uh, in certain ways. But what were, what was your kind of thinking when you came up with that, in my opinion, brilliant um, title for, for this discussion? I really like it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it's kind of repeating what I, I've said a few times, Eric, it's, you know, you got your subconscious or you got mm-hmm. stuff going on in your mind that um, you're not even aware of, right? I mean, you've yeah. developed these paradigms, these um, um, matrix uh, that, you know, were given to you as a child. And then, you know, they may, you may change them a little bit over time, rebuild parts of them. But you're basically still working with the structure that you grew, you came out of childhood with unless you challenge it. And there's all these ideas that are floating around in there that you don't even know are in there. And they're disrupting the processes until something brings them out to the fore and then you can identify them. Yeah. I really liked your example about the black and white because that's something that is comes up for me often there are and it's like whack-a-mole okay i've dealt with this one black of black and white way of thinking and then like a few months later oh my gosh here's another black and white way of thinking and like it seems that the way i was raised uh, with the certain form of indoctrination that i went through um all nuance was just erased and there was just like you said Without that nuance, without that gray area, it, life is just should is and should be black and white. And um, I, I struggle with that so so often. And I'm really glad that you um, you brought that up because that's something that constantly comes up. I'm not 40 years out. I'm all, a little over um, uh, 10 years out, um, and I'm struggling with something very very similar. You know, it's one thing that I found very interesting. Um, I've told the story before. Um, didn't realize it until after I had told the story a few times. I I came across a book by Michael Shermer called The Science of Good and Evil. And so I've got all these ideas, you know, I talk about I've talked about before I had, you know, I would I would have the thought when someone's talking about something, some religious issue. And I would think, well, maybe it could, it could be this. This could be the explanation instead of some God. But I never would put it out there and, and challenge, you know, the, the ideas that were out there. <clears throat> and then I read this book one day and I literally read the book in one day because I was just fascinated. It was the most incredible experience. I remember running downstairs, just jumping around, yelling to my wife, about this book and like finally there's someone out there there's something out there that tells me it's okay for me to have the thoughts that i have someone else is thinking the way i'm thinking and that's a huge part of why i value what recovering from religion does and what all these other Mm. groups that are supporting people leaving religion do because we didn't have that going up 
the whole world said, yeah, no, there's this God and this is right. And okay, so this guy's a little more extreme than this guy, but they all pretty much got the basics right. You don't have anything to bounce your your heretical ideas off of. So that was huge for me. Yeah. And that, but then what I came to, to realize later was that was the first time in my life, even though I had spent all those years looking for my own answers, it was the first time I had read something that was not put out by a religion. Mm. Oh, wow. It's incredible. So we're in the middle of this process of trying to find answers for ourselves, and we're still going back to the same old well. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, a lot of what you were sharing there too, Nate, and, and also Eric, um, I, the fantastic book by Stephen Hassan that talks about combating cult mind control. And let's face it, we were, what you're describing, you were basically raised in a cult-like environment where he uses the analogy of the bite model, the behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotion control. And it sounds like every aspect of your life was kind of, being controlled in that way, behavior, information, thought, or emotion. But to be able to get out of that environment, to get out of that bubble, and then also look at relearning our own behaviors, getting good information, as you say, researching things external from from the usual field of material that you might have been told you could read, thinking for yourself, and being able to control your own emotions rather than have them controlled or inflicted upon you. Um, I really think that's one of the uh, a fantastic book to help people like all of us who are navigating out of that, Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan. Yeah. It's, it's, an ongoing, it's an ongoing challenge. I, I won't call it uh, a struggle because, to me, the, the rewards are so much greater mm. than, than the promises that, that we had, even the most desirable promises that we got about who our God was and what we were going to experience if we, if we stayed the course, if we finished the race and all that kind of stuff, the, 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 um, the value outside of that, you know, the ability to actually live your life on your terms, discover there's so much to discover out there. There's so much to do far more worth it than staying in the environment that I was in. I know for me that one of the things that really surprised me as I was going through my um, deconversion or coming out of or transitioning was how much more valuable life was to me. Um, like before, uh, and I, I think I've spoken about this before, like before I left religion, if we died, fine, we would be going somewhere else. But afterwards, life becomes so much more precious, so much more valuable, um, and uh, also so much more beautiful than I could have imagined when I was uh, in the um, religious setting. Um, and what was what was something for you that uh, made this worth it? Uh, this process worth it? There's so many of my the thing I went to in my mind immediately was, uh, and I, again, I'll have to give a little bit of backstory. One of the things that, that my father liked to talk about was um, having kids. You know, he, oh, wow. those old passages that, you know, talk about blessed is the man who has a scriver full of them. And that uh, if you're in God's good grace, 
he will bless you with children. <clears throat> so conversely, that's one of the things I carried with me out of that environment was, was the certainty that I was never going to have kids. So, um, I ended up marrying a woman who'd been married before. So I violated that rule. So I just, well, I'm just, you know, adding insult to injury. Now I'm, I'm going to go to a different level of hell when I go, but so be it. And then a month after we got married, she got pregnant and I lived in absolute abject terror for the next eight months because I was confident. I was convinced that this is how God was going to punish me. He was going to, he was going to kill that child. So that moment probably was when that child was born. And then, you know, 18 months later when my twins were born or what I, when people talk about spiritual experience, mm -hmm. that was a spiritual experience for me. Mm. That was profound. And that was worth it all as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You were able to create a healthy environment for your kids. You were able to change things. Yeah, and I had hiccups along that road too. You know, that was that that was another one of the big areas for me is that um without realizing it, I I attached some kind of supernatural importance to corporal punishment. Because that was part of what we were taught. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Oh wow. So but I was gonna do it right. <laughs> And, and right was you, you didn't do it in front of other people. You had conversations with them before and after you assured them that you loved them. You know, all of the right steps that, you know, the kinder, gentler Christianity taught me until my youngest son, when he was, I think three or four years old and I'm going through this process with him and, you know, he'd done something. I don't remember what he did. It didn't really matter. And I, I've, I've got him up in the room alone and I've got him on my lap and I'm talking to him, explaining, you know, why he's in trouble and why he's going to get spanked and he's shaking. And I'm thinking something's not right here. This doesn't, this doesn't feel right. This, I shouldn't have this kind of reaction from my child. Uh, so I, I didn't. And I ended up having long conversations with my wife about it. And I made the decision because I recognized what I was doing was giving too much value, too much importance to this idea that um, corporal punishment is essential. It's spiritually essential. You know, there's a, there's a component, a God component to it, right? And I let go of that. And it's like within weeks, the, the opportunities, the, the options just you know, the, the gates open up and you have, you realize you have myriad options in teaching your child how to, um, grow up, what it takes to be a self-responsible individual, understanding consequences, legitimate consequences of action. And that's where the focus went after that when, when it came to discipline my kids. But I made the mistake first until you know, I challenged some of those old religious ideas that were in there. Well, that was behavior that was ingrained in you. So again, you were a victim of, of thinking that was the normal way to act, but full credit to you for being able to reframe that and change that to break that cycle. Yeah. But you're given, it's, it's, it's interesting that we actually end up giving some kind of 
special status to anything that comes out of that book. Mm. No. Mm. That's yeah, it's amazing. It's such an um, it's such an inspiration when I hear folks who um, break the cycle that. Uh, their their parents and their parents before them and their parents' parents before them were all trapped in. You know, when we know better, I, I think Maya Angelou said this or something, when we know better, we do better. And and uh, you you did that. And that's just so, that, that to me, that's very inspiring uh, to, just to hear folks do that. Um, uh, kind of, I think, wrapping up this little discussion, what... Um, what role did community um, play in in you working through indoctrination? You talked about um, talking with a therapist and doing some self reflection and identification. Um, talk to us about the the community that you found yourself in. Yeah. Well, and so even in the um, the uh, I joined an evangelical free church when when the kids were young because I thought it was important socially for them to feel like they were part of the community. Um, and we, we made really good connections and had good relationships with a lot of the folks there. Um, but there was still the religious aspect. And so I couldn't pull myself away completely from a lot of the ideas that I grew up with, even though it was a milder version of it. Um, and I, I talked earlier about the, the fact that um, there, there really wasn't any pushback. There was no way to challenge or to put some ideas out there that were contrary to uh, the religious ideas that, that your, your group or your environment held to. <clears throat> so it wasn't until actually, you know, Daryl uh, talked about the first time we met I went down to Atlanta in April of 2009 and spoke there and discovered. And even back then, it wasn't anything like it is today, Eric. It's It was still, I mean, there was a thriving community, but it was spread out. It wasn't nearly as large. Uh, it wasn't as focused on ways to help people uh, with the issues that come up with um, when you, when you, uh, when you leave religion. I got to tell you, man, it's like, it's it's night and day different because mm-hmm. it gives you so much. First of all, one of the things I like about this community, by and large, they don't they don't uh, put up with bullshit, <laughs> right? I mean, they <laughs> challenge ideas, and and there's a lot of smart people out there. That was one of the things you know you you're kind of living in your own bubble and you think, well, I got this stuff figured out. And you go out there, you realize, oh. There's a lot of people doing a heck of a lot better than I am. <laughs> yep. I'm going to shut up and listen. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's wonderful. Nathan, um, thank you so much, so, so much for taking time out of your day and coming to talk to us, uh, share your story. Um, I know that I got a few tools out of this just for myself on how to work with some of the the struggles that I'm going with. And it's also so very good to hear that um, I share the same struggles that someone else does, that I'm not alone out there. Cause you had mentioned earlier, like uh, I remember how alone I felt 
coming out at like during my transition process. Like I was too scared to talk to anybody. Um, I was almost too scared to do internet searches and uh, source some, like learn about it, but um, finding that community and listening to other people, um, I slowly began to realize I wasn't alone and it was so empowering, empowering for me. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the sincerity and the honesty with which you've shared these things with us, Nate. You've, uh, you've helped so many and there's a lot of beautiful comments coming through of people expressing their appreciation for you sharing your story and also talking about some of the things that must have been hard to recall even so many years on. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, you guys. Yeah. During the course of our discussion, we've had some, a few questions in the, the chat. Um, uh, the first one, uh, so like we'll, we'll kind of do a little Q and A now. Um, okay. the first one was, um, how long did it take for you to find healthy ways to deal with folks who were trying to guilt you back into the fold, guilt you back into your old belief system, whether it was Westboro Baptist Church or some, uh, lighter form of Christianity? Yeah. How long did it take? I would say, I'd say it's probably been 30, 30 years or more that, wow. that I was, before okay. I was not really subject to that kind of pressure. I have a very dear friend down in California and, um, she was probably the biggest, um, if you can call it support. She was the one that challenged me the most because, uh, she's not letting go of her ideas and, it was safe in the relationship that I have with her for me to hold on to my ideas. So there was a lot of pushback and, you know, her and I've been friends for 20, 25 years. So uh, it's a, it's a long process because you hear some of these catchphrases, some of these terms and immediately those old tapes kick in and you start thinking, Oh no. And you got to push it away. So um, it, you just get to a point where for me, I reached a point, Eric, where I finally was comfortable with saying the Bible is simply a book written by men. Mm. It has no special power, no special authority, no special wisdom. And when you can say that with all sincerity and confidence, uh, it's tough for people to try to convince you otherwise. Well said. And that takes real strength to get to that point because you were shaking off a whole lot of indoctrination to get yeah. to that point. Um, so how do you, how do you feel about your role now? You know, you've shared a lot of your background. You've shared a lot of these memories. Um, do you ever get to a point where you just want to just put all that behind you um, and just pretend it never happened? Or how do you see your role, say, in the greater community as yeah. such now? Well, what I found interesting is that when I started talking about it, like it was around 2009 and I did it, um, I was going at it pretty strong for probably seven or eight years. And I, and I realized this is one of those, uh, processes I went through that it was becoming very destructive for me to keep talking about it. And I had to pull back and I had to start dealing with some of the emotions that, that were just coming up over and over again. Because one of the things that we do, I'm assuming most people do this. I know I do it is when something's too painful, you tend to just, okay, I'll put it aside. I'll, I'll deal with it when I'm a little bit stronger. Um, and being out there, you know, 24 hours a day, so to speak, and talking about it, I didn't 
I didn't give myself that opportunity. So, yeah, I'm still not perfect at it. But when I recognize that I'm starting to have some negative um, emotional reactions, I'll tend to just back away from it for a while. We got a, a, another question here. Um, what were some of the things you did to rebuild your worldview and identity after um, you began to, your, your old one began to crumble? I know for me, that was, it was one of the, an instant thing where my worldview crumbled and I was left with nothing. And um, what, what was some of the, what were some of the things you did to rebuild that? I'd say probably the, the, the number one thing is I'm constantly looking for, for information. Someone gives me a book to read, you know, an idea on a book and I read it and it, it covers a wide variety of topics. Um, and yeah, I'm just constantly looking for, for new sources of knowledge and understanding. And that helps build, uh, a worldview that is consistent, more and more consistent with reality, I should say. And how exciting is that? Because, you know, we came from an environment that thought that we knew everything because the good book told us it, but we're always learning. We will never really understand or know everything. So yeah, how, how, how exciting that must be. I imagine you're always taking in some new information from reputable sources. Yeah. In fact, um, just now reading, um, Marlene Winnell's, uh, leaving the fold. It's got this chock full of really good information. Just finished a book, um, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Yes. I really recommend that if people are interested in, in, uh, in, uh, that type of thing. Um, he talks about the elephant and the writer that, you know, there's been this age old debate, which comes first, emotion or thought? And he's kind of put the the latest science out there, uh, you know, what we understand about that. And it turns out that emotion still is stronger than uh, conscious thought. And we yeah. have to always be aware of that, eh? Hey? Yeah. Um, I, I, the more and more that I'm learning about, you know, how I was before and talking with people who are still, who still have a, uh, still are indoctrinated and have a system belief, um, talking intellectually with them doesn't necessarily get to the emotional uh, reasons that they're uh, still involved. Um, and so I think there's a, a saying like you can't talk someone intellectually out of something they got into emotionally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, said. And that's one of the things that I say, I say all the time. People say, why do you, why do you argue with people about that? And, and, and the truth of the matter is, like you said, if, if they're, if they're still immersed in a certain idea, I, I don't think you can change anybody's mind until they're ready to change it themselves. They're at a point in their lives. So when I debate, when I have, when I'm on social media or, or arguing with someone, it isn't for that person necessarily. It's to put the ideas out there that someone who comes into contact with that discussion, that debater, whatever, when, the, if they're ready, then there's some information there that they may not have thought of before. Yeah. That's really wise because otherwise we run the risk of causing people to double down and dig their heels into their emotional belief or, or their mindset. But just putting the information helps. And when they're ready, if people will take it up. We can't force them to change. Yeah. We want an internet full of information. So when people want to access it, it's available. 
And that wasn't there before, folks. Right. Yeah. Invaluable, I think. How, um, how did science um, help you to shake off some of the residual indoctrination and things as you, as you grew? How was your worldview improved by learning about science and that way? Well, I think that's pretty much everything, science. I mean, that, that was that book, Michael Shermer's The Science of Good and Evil. When you apply the, the tools of science, you can find out the actual truth of the matter rather than what is, is maybe you, you think is intuitive or, you know, what's already out there as an assumption by some religious, um, book, right? This is the, this is as close as we can get to reality, to facts about the nature of everything, literally. And, um, I much prefer that method. And here's, here's the other big difference as far as I'm concerned. People like to say that we are just as religious as religious folks are. We're just religious about something else. And I strongly disagree because I'm not married to any of these ideas. I'm, I, I am comfortable and as confident about them as the most current science is, the most current evidence is, um, you know, even on evolution. Some of these things we're, we're pretty confident, right? Someone says that they don't believe in evolution or evolution is just a theory. I like to say to them, well, so is aerodynamics, but you're still getting on that plane. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, I'm not married to any, any idea though. I'm, I don't have that dogmatic insistence about anything. So, and to me, that's the big difference. Be prepared yeah. to change your mind when the evidence is there. Yeah. Exactly. Show me the evidence and I will change my mind. Like, and the same goes for a God. Show me the evidence that a God exists and I will change my mind. Now, of course, there's going to have to be a ton of evidence to do that. How we'll be able to, you know, maybe that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> that's right. We have got um, quite a few questions about um, Westboro Baptist Church. Um, do you feel like answering a few of those? Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, w- one of them was about the theology of West. Uh, I'm going to say WBC. One of, one of them was uh, the theology. Were they looking forward? Is some of the, the, the theology looking forward to the end of the world, like a, a doomsday type of uh, view? Absolutely. Oh yeah. They were, they, you know, the book of revelation, uh, we spent way too much time on that. Um, the, uh, you know, when all that stuff was going on over there in the middle East in the early nineties and then after, uh, nine uh, 11, all of that stuff fed right into that, all that stuff we learned that, that, um, Christ is returning. There's going to be, you know, and depending on, on uh, what version you su- subscribe to, you know, Christ is going to return. Some people are going to go up to heaven. There's going to be a thousand year tribulation and on and on. Um, front and center when that kind of stuff was happening, you know, they, they, they believed absolutely that Christ was going to return. My father preached that he was going to be the third person that uh, didn't die. You know, you got uh, Elijah, oh, wow. Elijah and he, he sincerely believed that he was not going to die because death is God's judgment. And so all wow. of those kids growing up in that situation, and I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons why they excommunicated him near the end, because they realized that he was, uh, he wasn't going to make it. And they had to, you know, in order for them not to have too much cognitive dissonance, 
he had to come up with a reason why he fell from grace. Wow. Wow. He, also, another question that came up is a lot of his behavior that you've described, very um, toxic or almost narcissistic type of behavior with yourselves, very controlling. Was any of that ever investigated by authorities? Was that ever looked into? We had one incident. Uh, my, my younger brother and I uh, brought home report cards that, that weren't, well, they weren't straight A's. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. And um, that turned into um, violent beating, left a lot of uh, bruising. Um, that turned into the principal and the, uh, the gym coach because we couldn't suit up for gym because the bruises would be exposed. Oh my uh, gosh. Called the police. The police were called in. They took my brother and I down to jail, to the police station, took a bunch of pictures, um, uh, filed charges for child abuse. And you got to remember guys, this was back in the early seventies and this was in Kansas. Very mm-hmm. conservative. Um, you know, a different time as far as people's attitude about corporal punishment. So it was pretty extreme. Uh, but in the end, uh, they dropped the charges because he was good at uh, being litigious and he was threatening, you know, all kinds of legal, of his, they put his legal experience. He was able to worm away from this, these charges. Yeah. Wow. But there's, I mean, in fact, I at one point got copies of the original complaint. Um, there's supposed to be photos, but I never, I'd have to actually go to a judge and get, uh, an order from the judge to get access to those. So, but yeah, that, that was as close as it got. And then of course, this, the sad part of that is that we ended up where my brother and I both got beat because we put the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in danger by um, getting the bad grades. So he had, had to beat us. So it was our fault. Victim blaming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, do you still have family members inside of the church? Um, I know a few of them have left, um, but I assume you have some more still in there. Yeah. Nine of the 13 kids are still there. And then um, I don't, I didn't know the majority of the nieces and nephews, but there's still a lot of them there. And that's pretty much the bulk of the church. And um, have, with the the family members that have left uh, Westboro Baptist Church, have you been um, have you got closer to them uh, now that you have that kind of shared experience? Some some of them, some of them. Um, it's an interesting dynamic when you grow up in an environment like that. You are um, suspicious of everyone. I had a very good reason for leaving. I'm not so sure about you. That's, you know, kind Got of in, in a broad sense what that's like. So there's, it's, it's tough to develop relationships. I do understand that within the, the groups of, you know, the younger people there, that there's, there's quite a bit of support in amongst them. So it is tough. Could I yeah. ask you if you had one little piece of advice that you could share with everybody who's, who's viewing today or who will watch this video? After all that you've been through with a new worldview that you've got now, what, what's your positive piece of advice you would share with us all that's going to help us to learn from your experience and your, what you've been through? God, I don't know. I'm always terrible at these. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, I would say that uh, just, uh, you know what, for me, it's, it's keep, uh, keep the hope alive, keep pushing, never give up. Because, you know, we've only got this short amount of time and, you know, on this earth. And um, I don't want to waste it now that I've wasted so much of it. It sounds like a galaxy quest. Never surrender. Never give up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I appreciate everything, you guys. Good luck. And uh, Daryl, it's always good to see you. Gail, you too, hon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering from Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.